I, I was teaching. And I, I want to proceed democratically. I don't want to go to... I, I want to have a simple show of hands. How many of you think that I have been preaching? How many of you think that I have been teaching? How many of you don't know the difference? <laughs> Amen, brother. It's a good practice, I think, to always start our sessions with a focus on the Word of God. And I would like to ask you this morning <clears throat> to turn, first of all, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. We're going to deal with uh, something that can be fairly abstract, that can be a little bit obtuse maybe, and that is the relationship between teaching and learning and between teaching and tools or means for teaching. We're going to try to cover that ground and break some of it up this morning. But I just want to have you read with me from Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, and we'll read through verse 35. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way... He met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice, who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And I want to simply come back to that statement there in verse 31. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? I would also ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Beginning at verse 5. And I want to read there from verse 5 through verse 15. I want to focus primarily on verses 14 and 15, but you have to read the preceding verses to get the context of it. Romans 10, beginning at verse 5. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. 
The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, everyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And specifically looking at the last part of verse 14, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? What the apostle is saying there in Romans 10 that preaching the gospel is essential to salvation. You can't be saved unless there be a preacher, unless you hear. And you might shake your head and say, no, 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 no. I'll, after all, you know, I can think of this illustration, that illustration, where there wasn't a preacher and somebody came to salvation. Let me make a statement about teaching that may at first uh, shock you and provoke you. First time I heard it, it uh, provoked a lengthy discussion. You cannot have education unless there be a teacher. Do you buy that? You cannot have education unless there be a teacher. You cannot have education unless there be a learner. There are two and only two essential things that you must have. One is that you must have a teacher and you must have a learner. And the teacher teaches the learner. If that puzzles you, and I, I see some furrowed brows, and so, uh, wait a minute. What about, suppose there is some young student, young child who grows up out here in the high desert where there are no people around at all, and he just sort of wanders around through the woods, and uh, he learns all about trees, and pretty soon he calls that one a pine, and he calls that one a cedar, and he calls this one a redwood, and then he can't figure out the next one, so he goes down the mountain and asks Larry. <laughs> or suppose he's 
walking around a lake up here, a pond, and he sees all these little frogs skittering along the shore, and he sees a few trout swimming by, and he sees all kinds of other things, and he learns. We're always learning, aren't we? Suppose I also add to that mix the notion now that we are always learning. We said that the other day. We learn from the moment we are born until the day we die. Well, we're not always in the presence of a teacher. Suppose I compound the situation and say that I taught myself how to read. Now I am... Jay, you don't like it? I see him shaking his head. Oh, okay. I'll... Your kids can teach themselves how to do certain things. Why don't you just, you know, go and teach yourself how to how to cook, how to bake, how to read. I'll, you don't need teachers. You can get along just fine without teachers. Right? I first encountered that idea back in, I think it was the summer of 1960 when I was studying philosophy at Michigan State University. And our professor laid that on us, and it provoked a horrendous discussion amongst these philosophy students, and uh, many of them challenged him vigorously. But he held his ground, and he convinced me that he was right. Now I want to try to convince you. Let me just put on the overhead what I call the teaching-learning continuum and see if I can explain. That's about right. The contention is that you must always have a teacher in order for education to occur, in order for learning to occur, and that there must always also be a learner present. That is a notion which flies in the face of our secular culture and which only I think a Calvinist can really defend. It turned out the prof I had that summer was a Calvinist. And he persuaded almost everybody in that course that this makes good sense if you're a believer. What he was arguing is something that I now take for granted and I assume as the basis for this material in lesson number six. The teaching-learning arrow there goes from the teacher to the learner. And sometimes the roles are going to reverse. I mentioned that last night. Sometimes the person who's getting paid to be in the classroom actually learns a great deal from those that he's supposed to be teaching. But then the student 
becomes the teacher and the teacher becomes the learner. So it's always an arrow going in that direction. What he was arguing is that we work through media or in the plural, excuse me, in the singular, a medium. That nobody can ever learn by themselves. Nobody can ever claim that I taught myself or I learned completely by myself. What we like to say as when we're not really thinking seriously about our profession, that I learned this and I did this and I acquired and look what I have accomplished. That's the kind of stance that Nebuchadnezzar took when he stood over there and looked at his kingdom and said, look what I have done. Marvelous. And God says, I am so sick and tired of your pride. Zap. You become an animal for a while until you learn humility, until you learn that you didn't get any of that by yourself. We don't ever learn anything without a teacher teaching us. That teacher may not be present there bodily in the room at the time. But that teacher works through media. Everything that you pick up to read, whether it's a newspaper or whether it's a magazine or a book, whether it is uh, some television program or a video program or a song or a piece of art or whatever, is a medium behind which stands a person. There is a person who is speaking through that medium and communicating a message to you. The library is now called a media center in many schools, and very appropriately. The library, what we used to call a library, is a collection of all different kinds of media that have been accumulated and stored there, and that people are speaking through those media to your children and to you. So when you go to the library and pick up books and read and study, you're not teaching yourself. Somebody is teaching you through those media and he now, he or she is communicating a message to you through those media. I have had the privilege of teaching many students in Ecuador. I've had privilege of teaching students for a number of years in Korea. I've never been in Korea. I've never been in Ecuador. But my books have gotten their way to those countries and people have learned from them and they've written me back and said, I learned a great deal from you. So I've never been there. This is simply the way media help us. What I want to drive home with this point is that whenever you pick up any kind of thing, whether that be a video, a film, a tape, a book, a magazine, somebody with an agenda, somebody with a set of values, 
somebody with a message behind that is trying to influence you, trying to communicate to you his or her sets of values, her or his attitudes, his or her messages. Never make the assumption that these materials in the library are neutral kinds of things, just hard, cold data facts that you can pick up and absorb. Those are simply instruments or tools that people are using to try to teach you indirectly through media. Most of the frowns have disappeared. But now what about the possibility of, let's think of somebody growing up in eastern Oregon where nobody lives, or in central Nevada where nobody lives. Can somebody get an education if they were all by themselves out there? Is there a teacher? Who? God, yeah. Only the Calvinist recognizes, or the, the committed Christian recognizes, that God is the great teacher, that God teaches us through his revelation. The modern world, at least the modern educational world, has forgotten all about revelation. They've washed that out of their thinking. You and I should never do that. God speaks to us through trees, through plants, through flowers, through fish, through stones, through stars. That's his revelation. And his revelation is not only his word, but it's everything in creation around us. And God teaches us. So there is always a teacher. Now, let me give one other dimension to that. I have heard many people say, not here this week, but over the last years, as there's a great deal of criticism about public schools, and a great deal of criticism sometimes about Christian schools as well. And the complaint is, uh, you, you've heard the phrase, they're dumbing down. They aren't, those kids aren't learning a thing anymore. And I beg to disagree. I think that those kids going to those schools are learning all the time. They are learning a great deal. Not the right stuff. They're learning all kinds of wrong things. They're learning wrong attitudes, wrong values, wrong concepts. They're learning falsehood so often where they should be learning truth. Even when it seems as though they are learning nothing, they are learning how to dress to fit into their culture. They are learning the values of their society. What they are doing, in a real sense, is imitating the world around them and we say you're not learning anything but we really mean you're not learning what you should be learning one way to portray it oops
I spread those out too far. God's word is a standard that we ought to attain. The individual child is there in a fallen condition, obviously below where he ought to be. If you let that child be, if you don't try to reform him, transform him, that child will simply sink lower and lower and lower, and pretty soon it will conform to societal standards down here. I've been saying the last couple of days that what we have to do is to transform that child by the grace of God and bring him back up to God's standard, to God's word. And then he will be learning the right kinds of things. Now, let that be background for lesson six. How do we differentiate ends and means? Repetition is not the mother of all learning, contrary to what the Jesuits have said, but a little repetition sometimes helps. Let me just remind you what I was talking about yesterday, that in the ecclesiastical situation, we have the means of grace. We talk about means to ends. And you have to try to get a clear perception of the relationship between means and ends. I had also tried to make this point that we have shared goals, that the home, the school, the church are all hopefully working together in cooperation with common objectives, common goals. Now, what I'm asking on lesson six is what comes first, the curriculum or the goals? And I'm going to suggest to you that we need to start out with goals. That's not the typical way schools function. That's not the way most teachers function. So often, teachers start looking around for curricular materials. That becomes an order of priority. Should we use Scott Forsman materials, or should we use some other, Holt, Reinhardt, Winston, or whatever the companies are today, or should we use Becca, or should we use Bob Jones, or should we use Christian Schools International? And I'm saying that really is a secondary question. You have to do something prior to that. Otherwise, you're going to get messed up. And I'm saying that you have to start out consciously, deliberately, trying to articulate the goals or the objectives that you have for your children. Now, I have already given here on this handout some of what I would consider to be primary objectives. Hopefully you will sit down. If you are doing homeschooling, the wife and the husband together will sit down for an extended period of time and say, what should these children be learning? And let's try to get that clear in our minds. Let's try to put it down on paper so we can have that as a reminder and I suggest here, just from this overhead, that all three institutions should strive to teach and nurture the child so that he or she becomes an obedient, discerning, 
wise, mature, knowledgeable, praying, loving, witnessing, sharing, Christian. And then you can put it in infinitive forms. Therefore, each institution should try to teach the child to obey, to discern, to act on the basis of true knowledge, to accept personal responsibility, to know, to pray, to love, to witness, and to share, etc. Now, you can add to that. There are other primary objectives that you may want to articulate. Then you need to go beyond that. And say, okay, what secondary kinds of things? What is it that we must try to teach our students? And hopefully you will come to some agreement. And you'll say, well, it's very important that our children learn to read. And I think that's a secondary. I think it's very important that they learn to write legibly. I think it's very important that they learn to spell correctly. I think it's very important, and you can go on down the list. And you may also take the time to articulate some tertiary objectives. Now, I've always, for years and years, recommended that schools do that kind of thing in the late summer before they start the fall session. Even if you've done it a number of times, that you take time to review and refresh your memories, to articulate for the new teachers particularly what it is that these kids ought to be learning during the course of the year. What it is you are going to try to teach them. Now, on the basis of that, once you have that established, once you have that articulated, now you can begin looking around for curricular materials that will help you achieve those ends. What I'm saying is that ends take priority over means. Not the other way around. Ends take priority over means. Let me just have you look at that second question on your paper there. And if you read through my education and the truth, you will encounter that argument in, a, in one particular chapter. Do we really teach history? Do we teach math? Do we teach language? Do we teach art? Yes? No. I'm sorry. I, I knew I'd get somebody to bite on that. Most people assume that we teach history especially if you are connected with secondary or junior high, secondary, or college-level teaching. Larry, do you teach biology? Watch out. That <laughs> was a trick question. No. What? What? He always thought he did. He always thought he did, but now he's confused. Right, now he's confused. I'll teach is a transitive verb, right? You know what transitive verbs are. They require a direct object. What is the direct object of the verb teach? The student. You teach the student. You don't teach history. I'm sorry. This is basic English, folks. Do you teach stones? Do you teach trees? 
Do you teach books? No. You teach students. Teaching, by definition, teaching and learning are, by definition now, given this continuum, those are interpersonal activities. They always occur between persons. You can't have a rock that teaches you, or you can't have a dog. Animals can be teachers. You can't have plants teach. Only persons can teach. Maybe I ought to go back and throw that. You see what I'm saying there? All of those on the left side are persons. All of those on the right side are persons. Now, you, the teacher on the left side, are trying to teach a person on the right side by means of, with the use of media. Of course you must use material. It doesn't have to be formal structured. When we think of curriculum, we generally think of the formal structured kind of curriculum. You don't have to have that in order to teach somebody. You can teach them with incidental kind of knowledge. With incident, You can teach them by being perfectly quiet. You don't have to utter a word. Just your presence, your example, your lack of response can teach, can be a way of teaching. The point I'm trying to make is that there are persons interacting with persons and you must always keep in mind, you ought always keep in mind, that you are teaching students, you are teaching children by means of an organized body of information that we might call biology or an organized body of information that we would call English literature, or that we would call history, or that we would call art, or mathematics, or whatever. Those are simply tools that we use. Think of the construction business again. The other night we were talking about foundations, and said that a foundation there is something that has to be there. In the construction business, if you think of building somebody up in the faith, you must have tools to use for that. Don't misinterpret. I am not anti-intellectual. I am not anti-academic. I think I've had held as high academic standards as most teachers. And I'm saying, you must know your material. I, I won't tolerate sloppy kind of people who don't know what they're talking about. But you must remember that that's a tool in your hand that you can use for various purposes. If I say, now, for example, one of my primary objectives is that I want our children to learn to love God, to love their neighbor, to obey dad and mom. Now you have to ask, how in the world can I do that? How can we effectively do that in God's kingdom? Well, you can certainly do that by looking through history. History has all kinds of examples of that. 
And you can select out of history some very prominent examples that, that exemplify that. My son and daughter-in-law who homeschool their kids back in Marion, Illinois, uh, have very selectively picked out of history some what they considered to be models. And uh, they recently took a trip. You don't have to you know, be in school. You can go in the car and learn a tremendous amount on a trip through Virginia and visit the home of Stonewall Jackson, a great Presbyterian Christian. Uh, you can look at... Now, you could also you know, look at some other characters who are not as good of models, and you may want to do that too. You may want to compare Stonewall Jackson with who would be a rascal? <laughs> well, Ulysses Grant. He was an alcoholic. He had a few other problems. But you can do that. You can show them here are some bad examples, and look what happens. Here is a great example, and look what happens. Look how God uses them. History you know, can be a tool for you. You can do the same thing with literature. There are tons and tons of pieces of literature out there. You don't have to just automatically, humbly take whatever the state suggests and says, this is what you... No, you select and pick what kinds of pieces of literature will help build a response in your children that fits the kind of thing that God wants them to learn. Can I do that through, best through, let's say, the writings of James Fenimore Cooper, where he's full of naturalism? Well, you can help them teach discernment through James Fenimore Cooper. Uh, should I use Homer's Iliad? Should I use maybe some of the great biographies of Isaac Newton? Or should I use some of the great poetry of Shakespeare? Or what you have to do is keep in mind what should these kids be learning? What kind of response do we want to evoke from them? And now, what material is going to be best suited for that purpose? I taught students, I've got to be careful, I like to use those shortcuts too. I taught history for a long time. You know what I mean. Don't take what I said, but what I mean. I mean, I taught students by means of history. And history still is very fascinating to me. Well, if you take a look at American history, there is so much out there. What are you going to select out? Where are you going to concentrate? Are you going to look at the history of the French Huguenots who came first to St. Augustine as some of the very first settlers in this country? Are you going to look at the Puritans who came up to New England sometime later? At the, or are you going to uh, look at political? Are you going to look at economic kinds of dimensions and try to figure out who made the most money and how much land was worth? And, or are you going to look at military history? Can you help your kids grow in the faith? Because this is what you want. You want your children, when they finish each year of schooling, at home or in school, you want your children to be stronger Christians. 
to be more on fire for the Lord. If a school doesn't increase the faith of your kids, it's missing the mark. Doesn't mean you have to have altar calls like Baptist schools do. I'm not in favor of that at all. But you've got to use the school as a way of building up the faith of your children. Pushing them ahead on that road to sanctification. I recall, yes, Jake? Okay. Can you increase the faith of those who No. They will very likely react and rebel against what you're trying to do. So what you're trying to do then in the average classroom or in homeschooling with the child that's converted is increase his practice of righteousness but not faith. Yes, but I'm also trying to present the message of Jesus Christ as sovereign king of the universe in such a way that they must confront even if I never call you know, for them to come forward for, but they must confront the gospel in my classroom. And uh, the unregenerate who lives in rebellion against God will also rebel against you and will not like what you're doing and will put on your evaluation at the end of the semester. All you ever do is preach at us. Say, all right, but I serve a higher master than you. But hopefully, you know, at least in your homes, in a Christian school, hopefully many of these children are on the road to sanctification and they will see what you're trying to do and the parents will see what you're trying to do and they will say, that's what Christian education ought to be doing. And those who are Christians ought to be stronger in their faith. I have seen it all too often people that I've known, because of their schooling, because of the courses they took, because of the things they studied in school, lost their faith. And that's tragic. That's tragic. Yes? Before we get too far away from it, can you tell me what the, what I hope anyway is the subtle difference between what you described as uh, the ends taking priority over me and, and justifying me? Let me yeah, repeat the question for me so that I understand exactly what you're asking. You were describing, what, first of all, when we were uh, discussing curriculum, you, know, you said, uh, do you decide on the curriculum or the goals first? Mm-hmm. And then you went on to say, certainly that we ought to uh, set our goals first. And then you went on to say that the ends, the goals, need to take priority that's correct. Okay. The question is, what is that subtle difference between ends and means and the relationship between them? Uh, let me try to address it this way. That in so much of our American culture, and we pick it up all the time, we talk about teaching history or teaching biology, and what we are doing there is putting the means in the place of the ends. 
We really ought to be saying that I am trying to teach my student to understand the depravity of man by the study of the Civil War. And that becomes now that whole Civil War information pool becomes the means to the end. Our culture says, no, we are simply teaching history. And what they are doing is confusing the ends and the means. They're, they're putting them in the wrong place or the wrong position. And let me try to explain now why that happens. That there's a good reason why that happens so often. is because one of the primary objectives that we have, that God gives us in his word, is to get knowledge, get understanding. So that becomes a very strong drive, a very strong primary objective, to get knowledge, to get understanding, to get insight, and then what we do is we collect and accumulate knowledge into classifications that we call subjects. And we have a subject now that we call history, and we throw whatever we want into that package. And then we say, because we are trying to get knowledge, which is the primary objective, we are using knowledge to get our end. And now what we've done is use one thing for the purposes of getting itself. And then people become confused. Does that help? Not, still not registering. Okay, let me, maybe I can get some help. Yeah. Yes. Wrong. We have a phrase that says the ends do not justify the means. And we use that right. to talk about both criminal or illegitimate activities and the means. I think you try to square what you're saying over against that statement. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to justify that statement. The ends do not justify the means. I'm saying, though, <coughs> the ends here in education ought to determine the means that we use. It ought to determine the kinds of things we select for purposes of accomplishing those ends. Yes, Rob? But all of the but all of the all of the means to that end also must be legitimately qualified under God. Yeah, so yes. The means sin. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think we're in the same wavelength. We're just trying to get all all of those means have to be legitimate, have to be justified. Not on the basis of the ends. Jay. That would certainly be agreeable to me. The means must certainly be consistent with the ends. But, Larry, uh, jump in too. One thing that I think we are seeing in our society is the ends of the goals of education are the proper goals that are largely being legitimate by the secular society. We're seeing a compartmentalization and an atomistic kind of approach to things because there's no reason to study some of the things that are in there. <laughs> yes, uh, Larry is saying we're, we are becoming increasingly secularized and atomistic so that we're losing any sense of unity, any sense of cohesiveness in our culture. Yes, David. I, I guess along the same notes as a recent college grad um, from a secular school, that kind of explains to me the the justification for people, for students being frustrated with having to take 
a bunch of GE classes which were not quote for their major and blown off those classes. You can see that attitude developing when when you don't see when you don't see when they don't when they're not given the proper reason why they should be taking a history class when they're learning something in science or something. Okay, that certainly is a good appropriate comment too. The person may be saying, I'm here for the sake of becoming an engineer. And engineering has nothing to do with studying the Civil War or with studying the English invasion of Scotland or whatever. Uh, and they see no purpose at all in doing that work, in doing that study. Uh, let me give a very homely illustration of that. When I went to college back in 1953 to become a preacher, the college told me that I had to have two years of Dutch and two years of Latin before I could start my three years of Hebrew and my three years of Greek. I said, what's the point of that? Why in the world must I start? Well, they had their reasons, but I didn't understand them. And I had no motivation, no rhyme or reason to studying that stuff. So consequently, I found all kinds of reasons not to do it. And did poorly. <laughs> so, yes? Well, yes, but I'm pushing that a little bit further. And I didn't explain myself when I said... But let me just try to illustrate what I was thinking when I made that statement about learning about total depravity and studying the Civil War. If you take a good, hard, careful look at the Civil War, you are going to see death and destruction and mayhem and blood and guts all over the place and you start looking at the numbers once of people who had to die in that war and you say how senseless how wrong what were they fighting for why should they have those kinds of terrible hostile attitudes toward each other it illustrates war illustrates the depravity of man war illustrates how bad we can fall you can look at other kinds of things, demonstrations of depravity too. But you are doing, you, you may look at some very negative things. And you may learn, the teacher may be able to use that material so that the child learns what's right and good. You don't only have to pick good, positive models, uh, although some people would argue that. But you can use material. <coughs> Tonight I'm going to make a point, for example, I'll get you thinking about that, that I think it's appropriate in school, for, in a Christian school, for the teachers to require that their students read Darwin's The Origin of Species. And watch out. <laughs> That's dangerous business. I think it's also okay for good Republican kids 
to read democratic literature. Oh, and vice versa. Make sure I touch both bases. I I think it's I think it's very appropriate that you have students in college read Marx or Machiavelli. But you you're playing with something that's dangerous. That's like in a sense playing catch with a hand grenade. Uh, just make certain you know what you're doing and you so what I'm saying is you have to always be conscious of what it is that the kids are going to be learning and sometimes they will learn the opposite of what you were trying to teach them and you'll say Lord help me and you really have to pray that because the devil as I pointed out is working overtime and he may want them to learn the opposite of what you're trying to teach them. So, yes, way in the back, Mr. She. Have you uh, had any experience where you have a Christian go to school and after his education in a Christian setting, university or whatever, he comes out non-Christian? Yes, sad to say. In spite of the environment. In spite of the environment. In spite of all the efforts of good teachers who are trying their level best, see, you can't totally control that environment. That environment is a powerful factor there, and your influence may be quite powerful, but that is not the determining factor. We can be. The question was, have I ever, in my experience, had a student who was going through a Christian school system, coming from a Christian home with Christian parents and with Christian teachers, working hard to build up that faith, and they end up as a reprobate, rejecting the faith. Yes. Yeah. In, the case, in the case of Boyd Boda, the one I did my dissertation on, there's a classic example of that very thing. And I had to ask myself in research, what was it that contributed to his rejecting the faith. Even though he had been raised in the parsonage all the way through his boyhood years, his dad was a pastor and he taught catechism. He taught Sunday school classes until he got mixed up and uh, he ended up you know, just totally rejecting the faith. So that happens, sure. Yes, uh, John. I'm wrestling with But it appears to me that if you teach students with the goals that, that you've enunciated, which you know, I agree with your basic thesis there, that it is perhaps natural for your curriculum to be disjointed. <coughs> that you teach total gravity, so you look at the Civil War, and you look at the Hundred Years' War, and you look at this war and that war, rather than teaching students American history. Uh, and so they end up really not knowing the themes of American history. To, to be, if I may be particular, I was looking at some educational material, uh, just one lesson from Bill Gothard's group. And, you know, it seems to me he, he emphasizes a lot of um, behavior traits and things like that. And he had a little chemistry lesson in there. And he was talking about we should be salt of the earth. And then he talks about sodium chloride and all that, which makes up uh, salt. So he goes, and from what I understood, he had no concept at all in this lesson. And I guess I could be wrong overall of a periodic table. 
what electrons are, photons are, how things work, et cetera, et cetera. And the institute comes out not only chemistry. Uh, and so my question is, is, is how does this fit together? So the student, yes, comes out with the godly traits that you're talking about, yet no chemistry, no history, et cetera. Because if I see what you're saying, what we really teach is not just job skills. But this is personal. I just went back to school for four years to get job skills mm -hmm. at my age. Yep. Okay. Uh, but not just job skills, but we teach godliness, which is a job skill. Okay. But I think, you know, we also need job skills in the sense of knowing how to use computers. Oh, yes. Yes, I graded that a one last time. Ah, yes. You are deeply into those computers. Yes, right. yes I put groceries on my table. Right. Okay. Uh, it is that kind of question that I'm wrestling with right now. How do you not be disjointed, but how do you have an overarching yeah. curriculum, yet still have that? That's a good question, and I'm hoping that it, you know, it's being picked up on the mic, too, so I don't have to try to repeat everything. How do we avoid becoming so preoccupied, so obsessed with these primary things, that we don't get some of the secondary and tertiary things done? I believe, for example, that a student in my history class should come out knowing history, understanding history better than the non-Christian. I think our end results ought to be superior, and usually they are. Uh, and the interesting thing is that the home schools, where they have less departmentalization, less specialization, still end up with the highest academic scores in there's almost all subject areas. You can find exceptions to that. But what I'm saying is you have to use your academic material, your subject material, not for the purposes that the authors intended, unless you know that their purposes, their agenda is the same as yours, but you pack it now and you select it with your objectives in mind. See, the guy who writes for Scott Forsman or the person who writes materials, curriculum materials for Holt or any other company is working out of a philosophy of education. He's working out a set of objectives and they might be trying to teach tolerance. They might be trying to teach democratic values. You come there and you're trying to teach kingdom values. And I'm saying whenever you use or select any material Select it on the basis of what the kids ought to be learning. That's what I'm saying. I'm not in any way saying that you should not be good academicians. I think it, it behooves us, to use an old English word, to be very good in our disciplines. So, yes, Jay? It might help us to just list among our primary goals to make our students a workman. Good way to put it. Yeah, I'll, <clears throat> I'm trying to think right now of the the motto of Chicago Christian High School. I'll, Wilm, do you recall what that is? The purpose is to Christ-like, competent citizens, or something of that sort. And it, it takes in all of those kinds of things. Uh, and if you say we are trying to produce workmen who need not to be ashamed. Yes, that would certainly be very fitting, very appropriate. Yes, uh, Lynette or Lynn? Um, about 15 years ago, I was in a 
Right. Uh, Lynn is saying that in our churches some years ago there was this very heavy push. And I remember that era too, where churches had to set goals. And usually it came out with some kind of numerical. We have the goal of uh, 400,000 by 2,000, a certain denomination once said. And I won't name the denomination. But goals, you know, can be badly stated. They can come out of our culture instead of out of the word what I'm saying is first of all look to God's word because they're his kids, they're his children find there what God wants us to learn and now using that building on that, find what materials can we best use and select to achieve those ends that's what I'm saying don't spend all your time on goals you'll never get around to doing the work and uh, if you never get around to doing the work, you'll never get results. So uh, the point's well taken. Yes, more question. Oh, I was just going to comment on this whole thing of, uh, that you're talking about. It, it seems like it's not unlike uh, what, what I even experienced in a programming class. Like I said, here I took a pro I'm taking programming, and the professor is talking about politics and in this programming class. Left, you know, way left. Okay. And so he's taking this opportunity while he's teaching us programming to espouse all his philosophy. And so if we're teaching history, we teach, or we're teaching history to our students, <laughs> we start with American history. We start with the revolution and we comment on what God's view might be of, of that event. And then we just go through history and we show the gravity or we show the good. Or we just like that professor took the opportunity to tell us about his political views in this class. And so we're, we're teaching history in a cogent manner and we're teaching godly values at the same time. Well, let me just say that I, I don't quite buy that. I want you to think of it a little differently. I, what I'm trying to do is to teach you a different way of looking at it. And what I'm finding right now is that in order to teach you, by definition, I'm trying to change the way you look at it. And because I'm trying to change the way I want you to look at it, you're resisting. And you're just reinforcing my theory of last night. What's the difference? Very subtle. But right now, let me just say this. It is break time. That takes priority over everything. It is, I got 10.33. We'll pick up on this and chew on it over coffee. <laughs>